This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. The Meanwhile in Memphis radio show and podcast are brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. In today's episode, we're revisiting a few conversations from the 2023 TEDx Memphis Conference. TEDx celebrates ideas worth spreading, and this week, we're taking a look at some talks that give insight to the power of listening actively and with the intention of understanding each other. Each full talk will be linked in the episode show notes, and we'll play some of the audio for you on air. Today's first talk is by Roshan Austin. Roshan is an outspoken and tireless advocate for the underserved in Memphis neighborhoods. She has spent her entire career developing hundreds of units of affordable housing, helping thousands of homeowners avoid foreclosure, eliminating blighted conditions, and advocating policy change for equitable practices. She has more than 27 years of experience and impactful success providing fiscal, strategic, and operational leadership in uniquely challenging situations. In her 2023 TEDx Memphis talk, Rashan challenges us to answer the question of if we are helping our neighbors the way that we would want to be helped. Enjoy A Great Awakening for Building Community by Rashan Austin. I know you were thinking she must be a model, <laughs> a fashion influencer, this middle-aged woman. Truth, I only play an influencer on television. Depending on the decade, the week, the moment in time, I play many different roles, whether it's a student, a teacher, an activist, an advocate, a cyclist, a mortgage broker, a grocer, an affordable housing developer, an anthropologist or a community builder. Never want to say I'm an expert in any of these things or in any of these roles. Today I choose to focus on my roles as neighbor, anthropologist, and community builder. Though there's been some debate, famed anthropologist Margaret Mead is credited with having a starkly different definition about a civilized society, a civilization, a community. Her male counterparts had defined a civilized society based on the advancement of its tools. Mead, however, didn't look at the tools in a civilized society. She looked at a hill femur, the evidence of a hill femur. A broken femur, the largest bone in the human body, renders us immobile and virtually helpless. A broken femur meant sure death from exposure to the elements or being devoured. A heel femur, on the other hand, meant that someone had pulled you to safety. Your continued existence mattered. I contend that as neighbors, as community builders, we fail 
to pull our neighbors to safety. There is a time and a need for a redefinition around community building, and there is a need for a great awakening. The Great Awakening was a revival meant to restore passion for religion when it had grown stale. It was the first experience for large numbers of people in the American colonies. And it is credited as being a big factor in contributing to the common American culture. The first Great Awakening took place before the nation was formed. And more than 100 years later, the country faced the second Great Awakening as it grappled with the moral dilemma of slavery, the social upheaval of the war between the states, Reconstruction, and the racial terror of post-Reconstruction. Whether I have the ability to host a revival today or cause you to have a religious fervor is real, real, real questionable. But I hope to encourage you to have a personal introspection and a personal recommitment to building community. Since the last great awakening, with reckless abandon, we've forgotten about pulling our neighbors to safety. There is concrete evidence. When government, the private sector, and academia collude to tell us how to act and who to dispossess and label as red, there is need for a great awakening. When statisticians can predict the future imprisonment of our eight-year-olds, there is need for a great awakening. When we, our love of our personal vehicles and interstate commerce cause us to erect concrete walls, creating gulfs between neighbors, and cutting off access to the most basic needs, there is a need for a great awakening. When our neighbors who live a short 13 miles away from us live 13 years shorter because we treat food as a privilege, there is a need for a great awakening. When we establish or develop 36 units of affordable housing for every 100 households, there is a need for a great awakening. There is an absolute neglect on our part, and we are all complicit, but there is hope. There is hope. Recently, I had the occasion to attend the California Urban Wood Conference. Yeah, a wood conference. So I hung out with foresters, and one of my favorite words now is agronomists. They were pretty smart people talking about the reuse of urban wood, green lumber, those type of things, invasive species. I learned a lot about the emerald ash borer, and I can tell you more about that later. But there was one scientist that said something that struck me. It was an aha moment for me. He talked about regenerative versus sustainable. And regenerative is a very hard word to say. Sustainable practices seek to maintain systems without degrading them. Where regenerative practices look at how natural systems operate and they want to improve in productivity. So it's not maintenance without degradation, it's improvement, improve productivity. I said, that's it. In community development, we always talk about sustainable communities. We should be talking about a harder word to say, regenerative communities. 
we have an opportunity to get it right. Beyond the philosophical, what are the practical applications? And I promise not to bore you with exact recommendations. I'll have to mention the undoing of racist zoning regulations and pouring in subsidies to affordable housing to stave this crisis. But I won't bore you anymore. A few years ago, I was asked to be a guest lecturer in a course called Faith and Community Development. And as a good student, I did some research about how faith traditions define community. I found something in the Judaic text, the ancient Judaic text. It said the scholar cannot live in a place that doesn't have 10 basic things. Those things included stuff like blood letters. We won't really talk about that today. The law court, financial systems, food systems like the butcher and the baker, a sewer system, public amenities. So in the Jewish text, in the Jewish tradition, community members or the scholar cannot live in a place that doesn't meet all of his spiritual or he or she spiritual and physical needs. That's the principle we need to apply. All communities should meet the needs of all of its members' spiritual and physical needs. I like to suggest something that is very simple that we can apply. It's the golden rule, simple. Do unto others as we would have them do unto us and build communities that meet all of its members' needs. I like to end with the model of the organization that I lead. It's also scriptural, and I forgot to say that I play a preacher on TV. It's taken from the words of the prophet Isaiah. We will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. We will renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. In a revivalist fashion, using regenerative practices, I bid each of you, all of us who are complicit in not pulling our neighbors to safety for healing, to rebuild, restore, and renew. Thank you. Our next talk is by David Jamison II. David is known as the Dope Educator, and he serves as an educator, speaker, activist, education consultant, and was even named Gap Clothing 2021 Teacher Icon. David also serves as a recruitment advisor for Memphis Shelby County Schools. Despite being misunderstood in his early childhood and constantly suspended from school for misbehavior, he always knew his purpose in life was to inspire people. In his 2023 TEDx Memphis talk, David uses his own experience to challenge us to redefine problems as opportunities. Instead of asking, what is wrong with that child? Can we instead ask, what happened to that child? Enjoy Reaching the Heart of Kids by David Jamison II. I thought that I was well prepared on the day of my former evaluation. I had all of my eyes dotted and all of my T's crossed. Until I discovered instead of one of my eyes being dotted, one of my eyes were closed. <laughs> the eyes of one of my students who decided to fall asleep on the day of my evaluation. <laughs> Can you imagine the thoughts that ran through my mind? 
I thought about how my mother, she often encouraged me to get into education. And I would often say to her that teaching requires a lot of patience. And I didn't have a lot of patience. <laughs> and at that very moment, my patience was put to the test. Do I tap her on the shoulder? Do I shake the student to get her attention? Or do I yell at the student to get her attention? All of these thoughts ran through my mind. While being evaluated, I had to make an evaluation. So I decided to tap on the shoulder to get her attention, and I continued teaching. And it was late in private that I approached her, and I asked her, why was she not attentive in class that day? She responded by saying, my mother and I was put out of our apartment the night before, and we rode around all night with nowhere to go. And as a result, I didn't get much sleep last night. It was in that moment that I heard that young girl's heart. And it often reminds me that oftentimes, many of us, we fail to hear the hearts of people that we interact with daily because we don't have an open heart. I thought about how the trajectory of my life changed when I bumped into a friend at a local restaurant in Memphis and he asked me a critical question. He said, do you have a passion for teaching because we need more black men in education? My answer was yes, and then in just three weeks, I was in the classroom teaching. In just three weeks. <laughs> well, so while I entered into education, many things tra transpired. Um, I remember, in fact, being in education. And there was this, this one kid that was often misunderstood, stayed in trouble in school, was often suspended almost every week. Almost every week. And while I'm in, in education, and I'm, I'm looking at this student, I'm reminded that oftentimes many of us, we fail to hear the hearts of people that we interact with daily because we don't have an open heart. And oftentimes we miss the gift because we're focused on the package that is wrapped in. I remember my first experience teaching was at a school in Strongsville, Ohio. And it was this one kid, he was often misunderstood. And I remember him being in trouble almost every day. And teachers would often say that he was a bad kid. But I would always say that there's no such thing as bad kids, but only learned behavior. And many teachers would say that he was a bad kid. So one day, I suggested to, to that teacher, if that kid is a bad kid, if a kid is bad in one class, a kid should be bad in every other class. So I suggest to you, if that same kid can go to one class and be a great kid, then why can't he go to the other classes and be a great kid? The answer is simple. The other teachers understood the importance of building relationships. The other teachers understood the importance of making sure that each child feel heard, valued, and appreciated. And it was in private that I approached that young boy and I asked him a critical question. I said, do you like being bad every day? <laughs> do you really like getting in trouble every single day? And I wanted to know because I was often misevaluated. I stayed in trouble every week. I was suspended almost every week. And I told him, I said, I even failed the third grade. He said, you failed the third grade? I said, yes, I failed the third grade. He said, well, what did you do to fail the third grade? I said, apparently I didn't do nothing. 
So we're going back and forth, and I said, okay, this is not about me. It's about you. So I want to know, why are you acting out in class every single day? He responded by saying, you, you really want to know why I act out in class every day? I said, yeah, I want to know. He said, you don't want to know why I act out in class every day? I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, well, my mother was killed right in front of me. He said, you really want to know why I act out in class every day? He said, I saw my brother die right in front of me. You, you really want to know why I act out in class every day? He said, I'm staying with my auntie right now, and she's strung out on drugs. Say, you know what? I didn't understand. And you're right. You've been through more at 11 years old than many adults have ever been through. See, sometimes what we see as a problem is actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity to build a relationship. It's an opportunity to make a connection that will leave a lasting impact. It's an opportunity to make a child feel seen, heard, and valued. Don't misevaluate the situation. Don't miss the opportunity to make it about the child. Because sometimes what we see as problems are actually opportunities. So be careful not to see people as problems. Because if you see them as problems, you will try to solve them. But if you see people as people, you will serve them. And that's why each year I told each of my students to come up with their own handshakes. Because I saw them as people. And you know what? People need human interaction. People need to know that they're loved. People need to know that they're valued. And students who are people need to know that they are more than just a test score. See, you have to be able to catch the fish before you can clean the fish. Many of us, we're trying to clean the fish that we haven't caught yet. And many of us, you see, we go to the fish market because it's a lot less messy. And it don't smell as bad. But the work that we do as teachers, the work that we do as leaders, is not for the fish market mentality. Because you cannot live what you don't love. So say this out to me. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than me. Yeah, it's bigger than you. Don't miss the opportunity to evaluate the situation. And don't miss the opportunity to make it about the child. Remember, what we see as a problem is actually an opportunity. So don't miss the opportunity to make it about the person. My mentor once said that sometimes we're good seed but planting that bad soil. And oftentimes we miss the gift because we're focused on the package that it's wrapped in. We have the most important job in the world, and that's to help to prepare the next generation of leaders. Socrates once said, the education is the killing of a flame, not the filling of a vessel. And as I found myself unpacking this powerful narrative, I'm reminded of the education journal of my very own. I stand before you today as the byproduct of great teachers and not so great teachers also. I know that may sound like an alarming statement, but it's the truth. And the true essence of who I am today as a former teacher 
to now recruitment, advisor, and education consultant stems from the very fact that I've gone from being counted out to counting on. So if you Google me now on what pops up are viral videos of Classroom Impact, a commercial with the clothing line gap inspiring all my students beyond the traditional content. However, behind those viral victories are hidden battles that led to build the platforms of success. I am the dope educator. I discover, overlook potential in everyone. Thank you. Superfood Laminati is a researcher in the field of data science, natural language processing, and machine learning, and she is the founder of the Linguistics Justice League. Through her STEM after-school programs at local nonprofit organizations, Suba noticed that many children, particularly refugees and immigrants, were unable to participate due to a lack of English skills. To bridge this gap, she created a multilingual book library app that uses computational linguistics and natural language processing to help children learn English using their native language and vice versa. In her 2023 TEDx Memphis talk, Suba asks, are we ignoring three billion voices? Imagine a world where three billion people are left behind unable to access information in their own native languages, causing a multi-generational economic and cultural impact. This might sound like a world of the past, but it's actually the world that we live in today. But before we get started, I wanted to ask the audience, how many of you know what a low resource language is? Please raise your hand. All right, I see a couple of hands go up, but I can see a majority of us don't which is completely okay. Before I got started on this journey to learn more about languages, I had no idea what a low-resource language even remotely was. To put it simply, low-resource languages are ones that are underrepresented in the media and traditional technology systems. So let's look at some data. How much of the internet's content do you think is in English? The answer is about 60%. The languages following this are Russian at 8% and Spanish and French at 4% each. The languages following this include Japanese, Chinese, German, and Persian. Now, you might be surprised to hear that Chinese is actually a 10th most spoken language on the internet, comprising 1% of the internet's total speakers, even though it's actually the most spoken language in the world. Now, let's take a step back. Imagine if you were a speaker of a language like Tui, a language from Ghana, with 18 million speakers, or if you are a speaker of Chinook, Nisqually, or Tshiltseed, Native American languages from the Pacific Northwest, how much of the internet's content would even be in your own language? Unfortunately, all four of these languages are considered low resource languages, which means you might not find any internet content in these languages themselves. Now, you can see the implications of this. This might create lack of educational opportunities and a lack of job opportunities, but the problem doesn't just stop there. It also mitigates the culture of these people, leaving these people out of important decision-making processes worldwide. It's a vicious cycle where the lack of information in these languages perpetuates the stereotypes and marginalizes these groups of people every single day. Now, a lot of people will ask me how I got interested in this topic at such a young age. <laughs> The answer comes from a simple debate topic. 
I was researching about the struggles faced by refugees and immigrants worldwide, and I decided I needed to make a difference in my own community. Therefore, about two years ago, I started a nonprofit organization. Because I was interested in science and math, I decided to host science and math after school programs for refugee children. Now, in the organizations, there are about 150 to 200 kids totally. But how many kids were even able to attend my programs? Five to 10. That's less than 5%. What was the reason behind that? It was the language barrier. Many of the students couldn't speak English, so they were unable to access math and science education, even though they were actually so smart. Also, even within the five to 10 kids who were able to attend my class, a lot of them didn't even understand what I was saying when I was explaining higher level math and science topics. So I realized that the problem was further than just learning math or science or any kind of educational topics. It was the language barrier. So I decided to make a difference and change my nonprofit organization. So I realized that many of the students spoke Arabic. They were from the Middle Eastern and North African region. So I thought, hey, if I learned Arabic, I could speak in Arabic with the kids, then I would have a bilingual classroom and the problem would be solved. But obviously I'm still talking about this problem on the stage here today. The problem wasn't that solved that easily. <laughs> so I realized I needed to make a different change because basically I couldn't just speak in Arabic to the kids. The kids spoke so many different languages, ranging from Ukrainian to Somali. Just by learning one language, I couldn't make a difference. Additionally, even within many languages, there are hundreds of dialects that are completely different from one another. Even if I was able to learn one dialect, I couldn't apply it to all the kids. So naturally, I decided to look for technology solutions. I thought of using translation platforms, popular translation platforms that might have the languages the students spoke. So think about it, on these translation platforms, we might have about 100 to 200 languages, right? But in the world, there are over 7,000 languages and even more dialects. What about all those languages that are left behind? Where will we find translations into them? I realized that many of the languages the students spoke were considered low resource languages, which meant that they weren't on these translation platforms actually. And even for the languages that were on the translation platforms, the quality was extremely poor. So it wasn't just that I couldn't translate into these languages. I realized I needed to create educational content, bilingual educational content for speakers of low resource languages. So after about three months of pondering about how I could change my nonprofit organization, I decided to make a difference. I changed my nonprofit organization from providing STEM after school programs to working towards language justice. And I hired motivated volunteers who are also interested in working and using coding for social good. So since the last two years, we've built a lot of different language apps, anywhere from flashcards apps to library book apps that are importantly bilingual, using the speaker's native language as a starting point to help them learn English. I also hosted language workshops with kids from Ghana, and I told them about the importance of their own language. So imagine if you're a refugee coming to the United States. You often have to leave your home behind, parts of your culture behind, and even some of your family behind. It's a hard situation. There are different programs out there to support refugees and immigrants worldwide. But when we think about low resource languages, we think about this as a global problem, not one that's specific to the United States. Most of us speak English here, and we might not think that this problem really applies to the United States. But what if I told you that there were thousands of low resource languages that are native to the United States itself? These are the Native American languages that are in each and every one of our hometowns. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, places around me, even the name Seattle, come from Native American languages. 
I realized that these languages only have about three to four speakers still alive to this day, making them critically low resource. That means in the next decades or so, these languages will go extinct and the culture with them. But what's the implication if these languages were to go extinct, if these languages were to go from low resource to no resource? Well, I'll tell you a story from last year. In 2022, there was a typhoon headed towards Alaska. The government naturally wanted to send a report to the Native American tribes up there. But the thing is, the government didn't know how to translate into these Native American languages. So they hired another agency to do it. And what did the agency do? They also tried to translate into the low resource languages. But the thing is, the translation was completely gibberish. It wasn't even in the correct alphabet. <laughs> so this left the Native American tribes confused about the actual problem at hand. The government was trying to communicate important information about the typhoon and the aid that they could receive, but the tribes were unable to receive this due to their languages being low resource. When we think about this problem, we often think about it as an economic or cultural impact. But here today, we can see that it's actually life-threatening. Not having information in your own language can make or break your own life. Now, with one language going extinct every 40 days and the number of low-resource language speakers gradening from 3 billion to 4 billion to even more, we need to make a difference soon. But how can we do that? Well, let's think about it in technology terms. So what are technologists today doing to help this problem? Remember when I told you that translation was very poor into most of these low-resource languages? Well, there's a method called zero-shot learning, which technologists are more and more using to this day to translate into, into low-resource languages. For example, let's say you want to translate from English to Twi, which is a low-resource language. We might not have very much data or at all any data into this low-resource language, but we can use the context of related languages. Because Twi is an African language, we can use context from other African languages to predict translations into this low-resource language itself. This is just one way researchers around the world are working to create content in low-resource languages. But we can't just stop there at translation. We also need to create educational content in these low-resource languages themselves to help speakers all around the globe. So what can we, as everyday people, do to help with this issue? Now, when you think about traditional forms of marginalization, what comes to your mind? Race, gender, income discrimination. But have you ever thought about language discrimination? Often, many of us are privileged. If you open up your phone, you can see content in English readily available. You can see news, emergency alerts, other things. But for the three billion speakers out there that speak low resource languages, it's not the case. They can't find translations into their own languages. We need to bring awareness about this problem to our government and companies worldwide, since it's something that many of us just take for granted. You can join different organizations and volunteer with different communities working towards extinct languages. Additionally, we need to work on government policies that can also help with low-resource languages worldwide. Or you can even take the further step like I did and learn a low-resource language. So in all, let's create a world where people can find the information that they need in their own language. Let's mitigate the digital divide together. Thank you. <laughs>
If we can be more intentional about the way we listen, think of how our whole community will benefit. Until next week, bye. Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.